Good morning. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here on staff and just so thankful that we can be together this morning, whether you're here or whether you're watching online, we welcome you. Uh, Forty years ago, uh, this church was founded and uh, we, um, we had two individuals that founded this church along with some others and one of them has a birthday today. Is that what I understand? She sips her coffee back there. And so, so we know the church is 40 years old, and so you were like 20 years old when the church was founded, right? So right around there, we're getting a nod. So, uh, so we want to say happy birthday, Pam, and uh, so let's so wish her a happy birthday. You can blame your children for the acknowledgement, so... So we are in the book of Colossians, and uh, we are doing a series entitled Greater, and that Jesus is greater than whatever that thing is that's in your life, whatever that thing is that's uh, bothering you, whatever that thing is that's weighing on you, whatever that concern is, that Jesus is greater. And so the Colossians were a people that lived long ago, obviously, and Paul wrote a letter to them Almost a third of the New Testament is a writing from Paul. And Paul never visited the city, uh, but Paul... Do I need to switch mic? Mike, do I need to switch a mic? Is it okay? No. All right, tell me if I need to switch a mic. I just get a lot of feedback. Sorry about that. So Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. Paul never visited Colossae, and he had rather a friend or a mentee named Epaphras that planted this church. And he most likely met with Paul while he was in prison, said, hey, this is what's going on, and Paul wrote this letter back. And what Paul wanted to do was to encourage the church there, encourage them in a couple of ways. Is first of all, your faith, your love, and your hope are noticed. They are noticed, they are good, and keep growing in that. And also, he wanted to encourage them to move toward maturity. Maturity is that there was this opportunity for them to grow that we can know God's will by knowing God himself, that we know his word, we know his voice through prayer, and that we also know his people. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was greater, that he was enough, that he is all that we need. And so this is where Paul is beginning, and we are still in chapter one, and we have another week or two that we're going to continue to stay in chapter one here, looking at Paul's letter here. And when I grew up, I grew up in a small town named Three Rivers, and I loved my neighborhood. We lived outside the city a little ways, so we had this huge backyard. There was a field, large field beyond it that we would go play. There was a large wooded area with a swamp and hills. There was great sledding hills. It was just a great place to grow up. Also, I had two neighbors that had pools. Anyone have pools? Anyone have pools at your house? If you have kids around you, you are the cool neighbors, all right? People want to be at your house, they want to go to your pool, and if you don't have a pool, hopefully you notice the people who raise their hands, and you can become their friends later today. So just invite yourself over, I'm sure they're fine with it. But the Garveys had a pool, and the Cottinghams had a pool. Now the Garveys were this nice older couple that were very sweet, and gentle, and kind, and quiet, and so it was a good peaceful swim there that I'm sure my parents loved. But I wanted to go to the Cottingham's house because they had three boys who were older than I am, and it was just the lively, like, party house in the neighborhood, right? Everyone was there. And so after church one day, we were there for an event, a gathering, and we were around the pool, and uh, I decided to go swimming in my clothes. I fell into the pool, and I was little, right? I didn't know how to swim. 
And there I just fell into the pool and I sank to the bottom. And I'm sure above water there was, you know, this frantic, oh no, uh, because one of the boys, the Cottingham boys, dove into the pool and grabbed me, fully clothed, put me up on the side, and rescued me. And I needed that Savior. I needed someone to jump into my mess. I needed someone to go in there and to rescue me because I could not do it on my own. And so when Paul teaches, he's reminding us that we need a Savior, that we need someone to follow after, someone to jump into our mess to rescue us, to pull us out of what we have gotten ourselves into because of sin. Now, the church at Colossae was completely in agreement with that. They agreed that they needed a Savior. Even the false teachers that Paul is addressing in this book knew that Jesus was Savior and they needed that Savior. And so their rejection of Jesus was not this full rejection. Rather, it was something very subtle. It was something very small, is that you need Jesus plus these other things. Essentially, what was being taught is that Jesus isn't enough, that Jesus is helpful, but not enough. And what Paul was countering was something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism really separated the spiritual from the material, is that there is a big difference, they said, is that everything spiritual is good, everything material or created is bad. Now, we still have some of this belief system that finds its ways within Christian circles, that tries to get into Christian theology, this Gnostic reality. And what was taught, what was believed, is that creation was set in motion by God, the Gnostics believe this, but that God himself, who is pure and holy, could not be involved in it, so sent an intermediary who sent another intermediary who sent another mediator, and this just went on for a long time until eventually something called a demurge created and created what was considered evil, the material world, all things material. And so there was this distance between God who is good and holy and perfect and then everything else that's created. And so Gnostics believe that you go for a search for higher knowledge, higher meaning, higher purpose, and we bring in this Gnosis into the broken world. A variation of Gnosticism even said that Jesus was only a shell. It wasn't really, uh, he didn't really take on flesh. It was just an appearance of flesh, which really throws a whole lot of problems into our theology. And Paul, he wanted the Colossians to know that it wasn't the separation, that Jesus is God. This is Paul's message. Not that he's a lesser form or partially God or appears as God, but rather that Jesus is God. God. And so what he does in verse 15 through 20, which is going to be our core text here, which I'll read, is that he is going to break this down. So let's begin in Colossians 1, verse 15. I'm going to read through 20. The Son is the invisible, or the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so here he lays out who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. And he begins by saying this in verse 15, the son being Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the first thing here is that Jesus is the image of God. And the word that gets used is the Greek word icon. And what icon means in this instance is the very substance or essential embodiment of something or someone. It's not, a, it's not like it, it is it. It's icon. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about how Christ is a perfect representation of God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Don't miss that. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the invisible God, the distant God that people were perceiving, Paul is saying he can be fully known. This God can be fully known because we know Jesus. Jesus came to us. It's God incarnate. And if we know Jesus, we know God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. In John chapter 1, John wrote, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself God is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And then in John 14, Jesus said, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is saying, you're looking at me, you're seeing God. You want to know what God is like? Draw close to me. See, the clearer the picture we have of Jesus, the clearer the picture we have of God. So often we just separate these two of like, I like Jesus, but this God figure, I don't know. Jesus is saying, look at me. I am the exact representation of who he is. If we want to know God, we know Jesus. And the closer we draw near to Jesus, the more we know him. Years ago, Joanna and I were invited down to Nashville by a friend to a dinner, and it was just a small gathering. He was um, previewing a film, and it was actually a fundraising event, and there's only 30 or 40 of us there. And, uh, and so my friend had invited me to a number of things over the years, and this specific event, uh, it took me a millisecond to say yes to uh, because he said, hey, I want you to come, and it is at my friend's house, and this friend uh, of his is a, a very famous Christian musician, and I was like, I'm there. And I listened to this musician growing up throughout my childhood and my teenage years and, and just this larger-than-life personality, this great performer, great musician, great talent, great ability. And, and I just thought, this is what it's going to be like when we walk in his front door. You know, it's just going to be this larger-than-life personality. Fast forward to the end of that night. I walked away seeing someone who was really humble and even a bit shy someone who was generous, someone who was kind, but different. And the longer that I would spend, or someone would spend with this person, or you spend with anyone, the more you know that person. See, I went in thinking one thing about this person. I walked away thinking a radically different thing. Because at a distance, I didn't know, and, and I drew a little bit closer that evening, and I still don't know this person well, by any means. But this is like Jesus drawing near to him, knowing him. Not just 
hearing about him or, or hearing about God, but drawing near to him. And Paul is telling the church, you can know God. You can know God. Verse 15 also says that he is the image of the invisible, but he's also the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is this image of God, but he's the firstborn over creation. And the word that's used here is prototokos. You got to say that one. It's fun, right? Ready? Prototokos. Some enthusiasm. Ready? Prototokos. You can go home and use that one in a sentence. It's a Greek word for firstborn. And it is a word that is essential throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament here. And, and what Paul is doing, he's tapping into some Old Testament theology and understanding. The Greek New Testament scholar, Kenneth West, he said this. He said the Greek word prototos, to, prototokos implied two things. Priority to all creation and sovereignty over all creation. He's first and he's sovereign. In the first meaning, we see the absolute pre-existence of the logos. So this is, this is really uh, the summation of all wisdom, of all knowledge, of all being. It was really a, a philosophical uh, reality that people would look to for a higher power. And so what he's saying is it's the absolute pre-existence of this logos, and John uses this in the beginning of his gospel. Since our Lord existed before all created things, he must be uncreated. Since he is uncreated, he is eternal. Since he is eternal, he is God, and the he being Jesus. Since he is God, he cannot be one of the many, the emanations from a deity of which the Gnostic speaks. In the second meaning, we see that he is the natural ruler, the acknowledged head of God's household. He is Lord of creation. So he said a lot there, but really the takeaway there is that he is sovereign. He's ruler, he's head, he's over all creation because he was before creation. He's firstborn that gets used in this sentence. And Paul nods towards the Old Testament concept of the firstborn, which is often the, the birth firstborn, but not always. Rather, it's more about rights and privileges that were given. It's about inheritance. It's about someone taking a role that's almost like a parent-type role, being the firstborn in a family when that's given. And since Christ is God, he's supreme over all creation. He is creator. But he also gave his life on the cross. He's supreme over death. And he's raised from the dead. So Jesus is Lord over all. So Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is firstborn over creation. And the third thing is that Jesus is creator and sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17 says this, For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here's this other large statement for Jesus, that he is creator and he is sustainer of all things. And what Paul wants us to do is to think back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the very first verse says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Colossians 1.16, he says, For in him, being Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, the material, the immaterial, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. That Christ is before all things, and he's supreme over all things. John chapter 1, it says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
See, he gives us life, and he sustains life. We're created by him and created for him. We're created in wonder and awe. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we existed with a little bit more wonder and awe in our daily world. Instead of just getting up and expecting the same routine and the same things, looking at things the exact same way, what if we walked with childlike wonder? I love being around kids. I'm looking forward to this coming week with all the energy and the excitement and the wonder how this set will be transformed into so many different spaces in kids' minds. It is reality. The wonder and the awe of being a child. And this is about the created world. What if we went outside and we're like, wow. Just pause for a moment and think of the beauty of the created world. What if we looked at one another and we're like, wow. You are made in the image of God. What if we looked at each other and we just said, you are made in the image of God. Try that later. See what happens. What if we went with this awe and wonder? What if we moved with that? Last night, Evan and I were able to go to a soccer game with my brother and his family. And, and afterwards, when the game finished, the players were coming off the field. And um, these, these guys are coming along, and they're signing autographs, and they're taking pictures. And as I stood there, all I saw was you know, these like, 20-year-old kids there right, that are playing soccer. But to Evan and Sam and these others, they're just, oh, can I get a picture? You know, can I have an autograph? There's this awe and wonder of what's happening. What if we existed like that? What if we looked at the universe and said, God created this? This week, I, I tried to look into the size of the universe that we can see or know and it's ridiculously huge. I mean, some people said, uh, just the size just can't even be measured, and what's beyond that, and what's beyond that, and what's beyond that, that, that God created this. But he created this, and, and this is huge and important and big, but he also created you. Years ago, Louis Giglio did a great talk named How Great Is Our God? And I encourage you to look it up on YouTube. Just look up Louis Giglio, How Great Is Our God? And he talked about the universe, but he said this at one point, too. He said, sin has a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. Though we humans are a vapor, tiny and frail, we are marked by majesty. We are created in the image of God. We are created. We are marked by majesty. We have been created in the very image of God who breathes out stars and puts the universe in place. Listen to this. God made you from one cell from your mom, meeting up with one cell from your dad, each carrying chromosomes. The one from your mom was carrying half of her DNA from the ones your dad was carrying half of his DNA. And those two cells met and merged into one single cell. And when they did, those chromosomes matched. And when they did, they began to form together a brand new DNA code using four characters, four nucleotides. And they began to write out what is the three billion character description of who you are written in the language of God, describing who God has ordained you to be. If you took the DNA out of that one little cell 
that made you and stretched it out, that DNA would be six feet long. Three billion characters stretched out to six feet long. If a person were to read your DNA one character per second, night and day, it would take that person 96 years just to read the description of you. It's who God created you to be. He is creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the image of God, the firstborn of a creation. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Scripture also says in verse 18 that he is head of the church. He's head of the body. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. But I want you to think like a river, like the source of a river, the head of a river. I want you to think also about leadership and oversight. That Jesus is the head of the church, all people who follow him. Jesus is the head of this church. It's not me, it's not the deacons, it's not elders, it's not the board. It is Jesus. This is Jesus' church. Jesus started it, Jesus will end it. Whatever it may be, his timing, his perfect. He is the one that holds it all together. We'll come back to this in a couple weeks. So as we look at our list again, he's what? He's the image of God. He's the firstborn over creation. He's creator and sustainer of the universe. He is head of the church, and he's also firstborn from the dead. I want you to notice, this is the beginning of stanza two. The first stanza, the first couple verses, starting in verse 15, he's the firstborn over creation. The beginning. He was there at the beginning. Now the second stanza, he's firstborn over the dead. Resurrected. He's alive in eternity. And Jesus said in Revelation 22, he said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he speaks to this beginning, this end, this always being there. It's this foretaste of eternal life. Revelation 1 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests and to serve his God the Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. He is firstborn from the dead. So here's our list. We go to the next slide. Need your help. Ready? With enthusiasm. Read it with me. Jesus is the image of God, the firstborn over creation, creator and sustainer of the universe, head of the church, firstborn from the dead, and the fullness of God. The fullness of God. Verse 19 says this. For God was pleased to have how much? All his fullness dwell in him. All. Not part, not a little drop, not almost everything. All of his fullness. Everything of who he is. His divine power, his attributes, all that God is in Jesus. Now the Gnostic teachers, I think Paul intentionally used this word of fullness, because the Gnostic teachers would say all the different spirits together, all the different eons, that they're called, when they come together, then that's the summation of God. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. Because they included Jesus in those eons. Rather, Paul said, it's Jesus. He is completely God. The fullness has always been and the fullness will always be. Dwelling here is not a temporary dwelling in Jesus. Rather, it is a permanent dwelling. Jesus did not come into existence when Mary birthed him 
And Jesus did not cease to exist when he died. The fullness of God has always been and will always be. And so if we want to know God, we know Jesus. Because Jesus is God. God is not the church. God is not the Bible. God is not the priesthood. God is not a building, nor sacraments, or saints, or methods, or material, or a program. Rather, these point us to who Jesus is, that Jesus reveals the Father. All right, here we go again. We're going to do the list. Ready? Here we go. Jesus is the image of God, firstborn over creation, creator and sustainer of the universe, head of the church, firstborn from the dead, the fullness of God, and reconciler of all things. He is reconciler of all things. Verse 20 says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We may also think of a verse like 1 John 2.2, where it says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, if you're listening and you're paying attention here, you may you may think something here, not necessarily everyone here, but you may think, well, that sounds like universalism, right? I mean, everyone ends up with God in the end. Like, it's a happy ending for everyone. Paul, and here in 1 John, is not saying this is universalism. What they're saying is that there is sin, that sin is a reality, that, that sin entered the picture and made us enemies of God. And reconciliation is essential because reconciliation that Paul uses here is a judicial term meaning that we have, we have distance, we need to be reconciled with God, we need to be set right, we have to return to him. One of my favorite stories in scripture is that of the, the prodigal sons. Not the prodigal son, the prodigal sons, there's two sons that rebelled. And this image uh, is uh, entitled Prodigal, and this is an image I've been looking at the last number of weeks, just staring at this, at the son and at the father, this embrace that's there, the son kneeling before the father, the father's arm around his back and on his head. You see this, this weariness. You see the rough reality, the dirty hands. You see reconciliation in this picture. And I absolutely love this picture, love what is happening here. And it reminded me of a story that Ernest Hemingway started in one of his short stories called The Capital of the World. And it's a story that, that you've probably heard in different settings. And he tells it like this. He said that there's a father who went to Madrid, Spain, and that father put an advertisement in the local newspaper that read this, that read, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana at noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. As the story goes on, it says that the next day at noon that the civil guard was called in to disperse over 800 Pacos that showed up seeking the Father's heart, seeking reconciliation, the brokenness that was within them, this gap, this loss of relationship, that they were there seeking this reconciliation. And it's the love of the Father that draws back, the Father making a way. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for Christ's love compels us. It says Christ's love compels us. It is his love, not his anger that compels us. It is his welcome back. And this is really the heart of what Paul is calling forth to his readers, is to come home, to come home 
to God, to come home to Jesus. So one last time here, to who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is firstborn over creation. Jesus is creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And Paul wants you to know that. He wants me to know that. So as we close, I want us to consider some questions here. Is have you been reconciled to God? Have you turned your life over to Jesus? Is he your savior? Have you confessed your sin to him, placing your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ through his death, his burial, and his resurrection? I want you to take a moment and just ponder that question. And if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, maybe some of these things that are on this list. Is there one of those that stand out? Is there one of those that pop out that you just need today? You need to grab onto who Jesus is, that he is greater than whatever it is because of one of those things, because of all of those things. And that today, just rest in him. That you surrender whatever it is that you're holding on to. Being reminded that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is greater than whatever it may be. Would you take a moment and pause, reflect and pray, and then I'll pray for us. Jesus, you are all of these things that we read out today, that we proclaimed, and so much more. Jesus, for so many of us in this space, you are our Savior. Today, I pray, God, that your Spirit would continue to do a work on those in the space, those watching online, that they would surrender their hearts, their minds to you, confessing sin. leaning on you, trusting in you, confessing you as Savior. And Lord, thank you for the work that your Spirit is doing. Lord, that you bring about salvation through Jesus. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And also, we give you thanks for the Lordship of Jesus. That you are all these things that that those of us who follow after you, that know you, that are your disciples, God, we would lean further into you, into your love, that embrace of the Father, calling us and welcoming us home. And Jesus, as we walk from this place, no matter what we walk into or are walking towards as we go out these doors, thank you that you go with us. Thank you that you care. And thank you that you are a source of strength for us. 
And Lord, I pray that we would honor you with our words, our actions, our thoughts. God, the conversations we're in this week, the, the, the work, the learning, whatever it may be, Jesus, that you would be glorified. And so, Lord, once again, we surrender before you. We submit ourselves before you. And, um, Lord, ask that you would send us, God, into the places that we're already going, that we would be purposeful. And so, Jesus, we're so grateful. We love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to grow, to be refined, to be encouraged, to be challenged. So, Jesus, we pray your blessing on each individual and each household represented. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.